You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. You are listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm Jason Giroux, and I have been a student of urban operations with the Canadian Armed Forces for almost two decades. My fellow student of urban operations, John Spencer, has very kindly allowed me to be the guest host of this podcast. For those of you who know me or who have seen my work on the Urban Warfare Project website, you know that I'm not only an urban operations instructor, but also a passionate urban warfare historian. I find that by studying urban warfare history, I can extrapolate many of the strategic, operational, and tactical lessons learned from past urban battles and apply them to today's contemporary operating urban environment, helping my students become better educated in urban operations. That's why I'm really looking forward to speaking to today's guest on the podcast, fellow urban warfare historian, Lieutenant Colonel, retired Louis DeMarco. Louis, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Jason. Certainly. Lewis has been a professor of military history at the United States Army Command and Staff College in Leavenworth, Kansas in the U.S. for over 20 years. He has a specialized subject focus that ranges from urban warfare to general army doctrine and tactics. He's considered a subject matter expert in Army, military, government, and occupation experiences, urban warfare, counterinsurgency warfare, and cavalry and reconnaissance operations. He served for over 24 years as an armored officer in the United States military and has served in a variety of command and staff positions, including troop commander to battalion operations officer and at division, corps, and joint staff positions. He retired as a lieutenant colonel. His education, he is a graduate of the Military Academy at West Point, He has two master's degrees, one in military art and science, and the second in international relations, and his PhD is from Kansas State University. His specific urban operations publications and works include a book and an article. The book is Concrete Hell, Urban Warfare from Stalingrad to Iraq, published in 2012, and his introductory article, Attacking the Heart and Guts, Urban Operations Through the Ages, which is in the book Block by Block, The Challenges of Urban Operations, edited by William G. Robertson, which is, frankly, another go-to book for professional warriors and urban warfare historians. Lewis, did I miss anything there about your career or any accomplishments? Summed it up pretty well, Jason. Okay. Well, let's kick off with uh, the podcast then. And my first question, Lou, is how did you become interested in urban warfare in particular? Well, I've always thought, even as an armor officer, that urban warfare was important. And in my time in various reconnaissance units in the U.S. Army, I made sure that our training included an emphasis, or at least uh, addressing the issue of fighting and doing reconnaissance in an urban environment in the 1980s and the 1990s before most of the Army was interested in it. So I knew it was important, but I wasn't really a specialist in that area. In 1999, I was assigned to Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at U.S. Army Combined Arms Command, which is a subcommand of the Army Training Command. I was, and that is the directorate that writes capstone doctrine for the U.S. Army. And I was assigned there primarily to write a overview manual on intelligence, reconnaissance, and surveillance, ISR. And when I got to Fort Leavenworth, the uh, person who was in my office with me was the urban operations specialist. And he was uh, an infantry officer, and he had been assigned to write Field Manual 3-06, Urban Operations, and he had just, without any notice, been reassigned to another job. And so that, in the summer of 1999, was the highest priority manual that the Army was working on, FM 306, 
and we didn't have an assigned author and I had just arrived. And so my boss said, well, you are now the primary author for FM 306 and you need to get smart on urban operations. And so I spent the next two years writing that manual. At the end of that two-year experience, I knew a little bit about urban operations. So you just happened to be at the right place at the right time when you were assigned the task. Yeah, exactly. From what I understand, you also teach an urban warfare history course at the U.S. Army Command Staff College. Can you discuss what that course entails in particular and the subjects you teach and discuss? Yeah. So that course, after two years at the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate, the assistant commandant of the Army Command and General Staff College had heard a couple of briefings and uh, lectures that I had given because part of my job as the lead author on the field manual was to travel around the world, literally NATO countries, as well as throughout the United States, U.S. Army and Australia, giving lectures and briefings on what we're putting into this new manual. And the deputy commandant happened to catch a lecture that I gave in Washington on the upcoming manual and offered me the opportunity after I finished my assignment as a doctrine writer to transfer across the post here at Fort Leavenworth to the Army Command and General Staff College and teach urban warfare. And and so it was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. So I agreed to do that, and I organized the first urban warfare course as an elective in the curriculum at the Army Command and General Staff College. That course, when I first designed it, now we're talking about 2002, was purely a, in accordance with Army doctrine at the time, a conventional, this is how you do urban warfare course, but it was history-based, and then drawing the lessons of history into the doctrine written in the just then published field manual. And since I'd written the field manual and as part of writing the field manual, I had done a a huge amount of historical research, I kind of knew those relationships. And so it was a combined tactics, well, not really tactics. There is a separate tactics manual for urban operations tactics, FM 306, then and now is kind of an overview focused on the operational level of war, little bit of tactics and a little bit of strategy, but really focused on theater level operations and how urban warfare fits into a campaign or into the operations of large size military units, divisions and above. Uh, The infantry school wrote, I think the manual is FM 306.1, which is the tactics manual, which focuses on how brigades and below actually conduct door-to-door, house-to-house fighting. And so two different manuals, and I worked with the guys at Fort Benning who were writing the initial 306-1 or .1 to make sure that their manual was in sync with my manual. I also worked with, at the time, the Marine Corps at Quantico had responsibility for writing JP, Joint Urban Operations Manual, and that's a whole different story, but I coordinated with them. I won't say we we were in sync, but we at least talked regularly about the joint approach to urban operations as well as the Army approach. So back to what I taught in the course. The course started out initially focused on conventional operations in an urban environment, and it focused on an operational approach, pretty much division level and higher, although there was a lot of tactics in it as well. There was a lot of history, and the history at the time that we were really interested in was the most recent in the early 2000s history. This is before OIF. So we were looking at the Israelis 
in the West Bank. We were looking at the Russians in Grozny. We were looking at Operation Just Cause, the American Army in Panama. That was the recent history, as well as kind of the traditional history, which goes back to the Battle of Hue in Vietnam, Battle of Seoul City during the Korean War, Aachen in World War II, Manila in World War II, Stalingrad in World War II. So the focus then was very much, though, conventional urban operations. So it sounded like after all the, you've done all this research, you've put all this work into making this course. Did the course really inspire the book Concrete Hell, if that's the case? Yes, it did, but not until several years later. So I began teaching the course in 2002. OIF happened in 2003. OIF quickly morphed into a counterinsurgency campaign in Iraq, mostly centered on cities. And here at Fort Leavenworth, we began writing the counterinsurgency manual uh, under General Petraeus. And I got not exactly sure how. I think I just knew some people that were involved in that writing effort, and they wrote me into that writing effort. And so I kind of became a counterinsurgency person. But then I combined that with my knowledge of urban operations and then modified the course significantly. So the front half of course, and this is the way it's taught now, is conventional urban operations. And then we morph into uh, counterinsurgency operations in a urban environment. And now in the last few years, the last piece of the course is hybrid warfare in an urban environment. In other words, counterinsurgency and conventional operations simultaneously in an urban environment. And the entire course is history or case study based. So for those last operations, we look at the Battle of Ramadi. And now in the last year, I've incorporated the 2017 Battle of Mosul, and that's where we end the course. And then what I've also added as a practicum for the last lesson of the course, it's a 12-lesson course. In the last lesson, we focus on a practicum looking at urban defensive characteristics of Eastern European cities. And most recently, we used the city of Riga and basically went through a a discussion of train characteristics and what's militarily significant about the city and approaches to the city from uh, the Belarus border and talk through various considerations if a NATO force had to defend that city. Oh, that's fascinating. I need to get on that course. I don't know if you have uh, exchange officers on that course or not. Uh, I need to try to convince my chain of command uh, to see if they can send me down there. Actually, the last two times I've taught the course, I've had more NATO officers than American officers in the course, the, especially the Eastern Europeans. In fact, I, the scenario I just described, I had a Latvian officer, Lithuanian officer, a Polish officer, Ukrainian officer, German officer, and then American officers in that same, all in the same classroom. Well, that's fantastic because, I mean, now you see the movement, and I think it's a grassroots movement amongst many militaries to begin focusing on urban operations. So the fact that this grassroots movement is now percolated up and that there's militaries around the world that are actually sending exchange officers to your course, I think is a fantastic sign. Yeah, and I might add, these guys, the allied officers that I have are primarily, they're sent here to Fort Leavenworth for the Command and General Staff College. And then they have the opportunity to take electives at the end of that course. And so these guys are 
already here. So they don't come here specifically for that, but it's a popular course among uh, NATO officers. Oh, good. So it's almost like you've taken Concrete Hell, your book, and you use that as the baseline for the course, but now you've improved it because you talk about all these other additional case studies in order to overall improve the course. And that's absolutely fantastic. So when it comes to Concrete Hell itself, if you don't mind me going back to that fantastic book, and I have to say, Lou, that after every lecture I give to my students, I always have a slide on recommended books that they must read. And yours is right there, dead center in the middle all the time, because it's been such an influential book for me as an urban warfare historian and an urban operations instructor, because of how you approached it with the case studies. You discussed tactics, techniques, and procedures for both the opposing sides and the lessons learned. So my question is, when it came to all these case studies, and you mentioned some of them, um, Stalingrad, Aachen, Seoul, Huey, Algiers, Northern Ireland, the Battle of First Grozny, uh, Janine, Nablus, and Ramadi. For the readers who haven't had the opportunity to read the book, these case studies cover a wide spectrum. So you've got the large-scale combat operations to the insurgencies. So I'll ask you a number of questions. And this is my military historian side coming out. Which chapter was your favorite case study to research and write, and why was that? I like all the chapters. And and it's a tough question, but I think that the chapter that's most informative and relevant is uh, the last content chapter, which is the Battle of Ramadi. And the reason I say that is because I think, although this is probably changing somewhat, most people who think of modern urban warfare and the war in Iraq think of the Battle of Fallujah. And I deliberately, I would have liked to have included the Battle of Fallujah. And in fact, in my course, I do include the Battle of Fallujah, but I don't in the book because I think the Battle of Fallujah doesn't offer a lot of new insights into how to conduct urban operations. It offers a lot of confirmation of previous tactics, techniques, and procedures that work, but there's not a lot new in Fallujah. Whereas Ramadi, with the use of combat outposts, the use of special operations forces, and, and the use of a heavy force in an urban area, there's a lot of interesting and innovative tactics, techniques, and procedures that happen in Ramadi that add to the uh, body of knowledge about urban operations. So that chapter there is one of my favorites. So that's really, I mean, one of my questions was if you were, if you were being forced to read only one case study from the book, which one would you select? You would definitely say Ramadi out of all of those. Yeah, I would. But then, you know, Ramadi is great if you're doing an insurgency heavy scenario or you're in an insurgency heavy environment. But if you were to tell me that you were going to conduct urban operations against a conventional force, then I would probably go to a different case study. Maybe Aachen, which I, I like a lot of the TTP there. Probably Aachen, just because it's the opposite end, large-scale combat operations, multi-division operations against a peer competitor. And, and Aachen has a lot of kind of the basics of conventional urban operations, mouse holing and armor infantry teams and use of artillery and isolating the city. Those kind of things are well illustrated in the Battle of Aachen. And so if, if it's a conventional fight, Aachen might be the battle I chose. And that's understandable too, because in all honesty, before I had read your book, I had not 
heard about the Urban Battle of Vakin. And after I read that particular chapter in your book, I was like, this is what right looks like. This is success. And then you, of course, countered that with the first Battle of Grozny, where you see failure being a better teacher than success there. So I thought it was a nice balance of showing both success and failure in the one publication, which I thought was brilliant on your part. So you mentioned that you didn't add Second Fallujah, the Second Battle of Fallujah on purpose. Were there any other case studies that you had actually produced for the first edition of the book, but you didn't add because you either had a lack of resources or you had just written too many chapters already or anything of the such like that? Uh, yeah, there were several. The limitation on the book was I had a time limitation in that the, the publisher wanted to get the book out relatively quickly. So I had about a year to put it all together. And given that I teach full-time and have a lot of other obligations, a year is a short timeline for a book, for any book. Yes, it is. And there was a page limitation. And the page limitation was as restrictive because I, you asked earlier and I didn't even answer the question. You asked which came first. So the, the course came first. And over the years of teaching that course, so now I've been teaching that course for almost 20 years. Over the years of teaching that course, I'm constantly trying to find sources that can be read quickly and have the right history. And what I mean by the right history is my course is focused on the operational level of war with a bit of strategy and a bit of tactics thrown in. And so finding a reading or readings that address that level of war but are short enough that a student, because I teach the course basically in iterations of two or three classes a week for four to five weeks. And so a student has to be able to do the readings, understand the battle, understand the important lessons learned from the battle and how those fit into the doctrine, because there's also concurrent doctrinal readings that I have them do. And they have to do it in a couple of days between classes. So I need a short reading that gets to my subject. And what I figured out after about seven or eight years of teaching it was that I probably needed to write those, those readings myself. And then at the same time, I was offered an opportunity by Osprey Publishing to edit a book similar to Block by Block, but a commercially published book. Block by Block is published by the Army University Press, so it's a government book. And Osprey Publishing offered me the opportunity to put together an anthology on urban operations, similar to an earlier anthology that they had done on counterinsurgency. And I went back to them with a counterproposal because I had read their anthologies. And my issue with anthologies is if you're the editor, you might write one or two chapters, but then you farm out the rest and you become, you know, the the editor, the and really the the project manager, and so you manage suspenses and you do editing, and there's a lot of administrative burden on the editor. But the real problem I have with anthologies is that since you might have ten or twelve writers, there's no building. The writers don't coordinate their chapters, and there's no building a cohesive theme or storyline into the book. And since I was already thinking of writing for my own course and I had a cohesive storyline in my course, I proposed to Osprey that instead of being the editor, that I write the whole book. And so the course drove the book in many ways. And then it was just lucky that there was a publisher interested in the subject about the same time I was interested in writing it. 
So if Osprey came back to you right now, and Lewis, we loved Concrete Hell so much that we want you to make a second edition, what urban operations case studies would you add to the book? Or if they wanted to make a second edition with a completely new set of case studies, what would you like to add in there? There's a lot that I could add. In World War II, I would add the Battle of Manila big time. Would have liked to have done that in the original copy or, or the original edition, but I already had two chapters on World War II and I needed to move on. I would have also liked to have added a chapter on post-World War II occupation of German cities, which I'm very interested in because I have a strong civil affairs history, military government history background. I know a lot about that subject, and it's a fascinating subject. And rebuilding and governing foreign urban populations is a critical task, which is little understood and little practiced. And post-World War II Germany there's a lot to be learned from how the Allies executed that task on a large scale. So I would have included a chapter on that. I would have included, as I mentioned, a chapter on the Battle of Fallujah. It's a great contrast with the Battle of Ramadi. They're only separated in time by a year or so, but totally different operational approaches and totally different structure of the organization, the military organization tasked with the mission, the troops to task ratios and compositions are very, very different. And so it's a great bookend to the Battle of Ramadi. So I would have included that. I would, as I mentioned, have included a chapter on the Battle of Mosul in 2017. I would also have included a chapter on Operation Just Cause, the battle, which is essentially the battle for Panama City, 1990, I think which is a really good example of the use of special operations forces as the main effort in a quick and dirty urban operation, especially a forced entry type of urban operation. So there's about five right there. And all of those at different times I have taught as part of my course. My course is pretty dynamic in the sense of, for example, the Battle of Missoula in 2017. Two years ago, we didn't teach that, but now that's one of the lessons. And every time I add something, I have to drop something. And so Grozny, which I used to teach, has dropped. And if I, I'm thinking about expanding my practicum to a two-lesson thing, a two-lesson uh, practicum, one focused on Eastern Europe and one focused on the Indo-Pacific theater. And if I do that, I have to drop something else. So it's a constant calculation of what is most relevant uh, in any particular year for me to pass on uh, to the students or for me to study with the students. It's a good problem to have actually, because now it always, it keeps the course dynamic and alive and always uh, changing and always new, which is great. But I, I also want to go back to your point about, uh, it surprised me when you said the rebuilding of German cities post Second World War. One of the things I found when I was researching for my thesis on Ortona for my graduate degree is that everybody just stopped talking about Ortona after the bullets stop being fired and the building stopped falling. And I thought, no, there's got to be a story here after Ortona. Like, what did the Canadians do after the battle ended? And it turned out there was, and the, the material was there. It just had never been talked about in most of the major publications that had talked about the Battle of Ortona. That, you know, the Canadians actually stayed there for several months afterwards and they helped rebuild the city. And uh, there was a number of activities the Canadians did. And I thought, you know, this is important and this is a gap that a lot of people don't think about what happens after the urban battle finishes. And now you actually have to rebuild the town and rebuild people's lives, which I think is absolutely fantastic that you thought of that and that you've incorporated it into the course, which is great. 
If you don't mind, I'd like to switch to your other well-known article. This is Attacking the Hearts and Guts, Urban Operations Through the Ages. I mentioned it's the introductory article to a very influential book on urban warfare history, Block by Block, Challenges of Urban Operations, as you and I mentioned earlier, edited by William G. Robertson. So I know you wrote this over 20 years ago, so I hope I'm not catching you off guard too much, but Block by Block is focused on what I would call modern urban warfare and operations. So it discusses everything from Stalingrad in 1942 up to the deployment of American soldiers to Florida because of Hurricane Andrew in 1992. Yet your introduction focuses on urban battles from the time of Sun Tzu 2,500 years ago to the deployment of the American soldiers to Washington, D.C. to quell the bonus marchers in 1932. So why did you decide to focus on all these ancient to early 20th century urban operations when the focus of the book itself was Stalingrad to the present, it was an interesting juxtaposition that you had between the introduction of the book and the, and the remainder of the chapters. Well, I did that deliberately and I sold it to the editor because I thought at the time I wrote that I had just finished writing the, the Army Field Manual and in the process of researching the Army Field Manual and doing some other history projects, I had come to the conclusion that urban operations were nothing new. And that in fact, you know, today, the 20 years since I wrote that chapter, today, I still believe that. In fact, I believe it more strongly. And I'm willing to say that urban operations through most of military history were the predominant form of warfare. Battles in the open field were the exception and sieges of cities were the norm. And I don't remember if I mentioned this in the in the block-by-block chapter, because I've written about it in other places, but the very first battle that we know enough about to actually piece together a military history of is the Battle of Kadesh between the Hittites and uh, the Egyptians. It takes place in what is modern-day Syria, and it's a battle between chariot armies, but the entire focus of the battle is control of the city of Kadesh, which is a vital city that controls trade routes from inner Syria out to the Mediterranean Sea. And so uh, in the very first battle that we know anything about in military history, the objective is a city. And if you look at the long expanse of military history up through the age of Napoleon, most of The great captains of history, although they made their name in open field battles, spent more time, much more time, focused on how to capture cities in what traditionally has been called siege warfare. But siege warfare is essentially urban warfare. Most great captains spent much more time focused on how to capture cities than they did on how to defeat other armies in the field. That changes temporarily in the age of Napoleon when, and maybe a little bit before Napoleon, the the early modern period when gunpowder and musketry require military combat power to be measured in terms of volley firing, and which requires that you have large linear formation and you maneuver it into a position of advantage. And then from that position of advantage, you use firepower and occasionally shock action in open field battle to overcome your enemy. You see that beginning in the early modern period with generals like Frederick the Great, Marlborough, but even Marlborough and Frederick the Great, when you actually examine details of uh, how they conducted warfare, were extensively interested in siege warfare 
and in, in many cases conducted way more sieges than they did open field battles. It's not till you get to Napoleon where you see that ratio shift where open field battle becomes more decisive and more common than siege warfare. Although Napoleon, throughout the Napoleonic Wars, there are important sieges waged by Napoleon himself and his armies. As a result of the Napoleonic Wars through the 19th century, you see open field battle become kind of the coin of the realm in the sense of that's what every general wanted to excel at, and that is where decisive combat occurred. And siege warfare gets pushed into the background. World War One, trench warfare dominates, and it's kind of an aberration because trench warfare is unique to the circumstances of World War One. World War Two, armored warfare and large-scale maneuver appear to continue the the focus on uh, maneuver and firepower. But in World War Two, if you dig down deep and you start to look at what are the critical battles. You start to see things coming full circle and urban warfare, beginning with Stalingrad, probably make an argument that maybe even earlier, but certainly by the time of Stalingrad, urban warfare is becoming an important part of warfare. And then when you examine subsequent wars after 1945, Vietnam is the famous jungle war. But when you look at what is decisive in the Vietnam War, it's military operations in Saigon. It's the battle for Hue. It's the 1972 Easter Offensive and the 1975 North Vietnamese Offensive that conquers South Vietnam. And all of those, especially the latter two, well, Tet Offensive in 68 and the Easter Offensive in 72, and then the final offensive in 75, they're not focused on the jungles. They're focused on capturing the South Vietnamese urban areas. And that's generally considered a jungle war. But no, it's really an urban war with in between the decisive urban battles, a lot of tactical operations happening in the highlands and in the jungles, but they're never decisive. The decisive fights are in the urban areas. And that, I think, has become increasingly important or an increasingly dominant characteristic of modern war as you move into the 80s. You know, I've mentioned the operation, operation Just Cause, the war to uh, remove Noriega in Panama is almost completely fought in Panama City. And you could argue, well, look at the Gulf War in 1991. And that's, you know, open desert battlefield. But what was the real objective? The real objective was get the Iraqis out of Kuwait City. And so that large scale maneuver by U.S. 18th Corps and 7th Corps in the open desert, that was a maneuver designed to unhinge the Iraqi defense of Kuwait City. So it was still about urban warfare, even though it included a huge amount of open space maneuver. And then, and I would also argue that that type of open space maneuver is becoming less and less common over time. The war in Iraq, OIF war in Iraq, is all about the Iraqi cities. And even Afghanistan, you know, when it comes down to the final arguments about Afghanistan, how does the Taliban conduct operations and where does the Taliban conduct operations last year in uh, 2021 that ultimately defeats the Afghan army? It's in the Afghan cities. And so I think the trend is back to where it was prior to Napoleon, which is warfare is about cities primarily. And the tactics, techniques, and procedures pre-Napoleon were the traditional 
tactics, techniques, and procedures of siege warfare, catapults and cannons and fortresses. But that was just a function of the technology of the time. Ultimately, though, warfare until Napoleon for the first 2,000 plus years of recorded military history is about controlling cities. And today, warfare, I think, is still going to be about controlling cities. Right. And what I also liked about the article was that the same factors and the same themes that we're seeing in recent urban operations and the urban operations of the present, how you mentioned cities are the strategic centers of gravity. You need to attack them for operational reasons, sustainment. They take a lot of time. There's civilians in the urban battle space. There's increased consumption of ammunition, increased force ratios. You demonstrate that that happened you know, in 2,500 years of fighting that those themes are present in urban operations pre-Napoleon and they're present now. And so I thought that was a brilliant way of tying the past to the present and the future. So again, well done you. I I can only imagine though that covering 2,500 years of urban operations history, the research process for that must have been rather trying or rather difficult. And again, the military historian in me coming out because that's a, a wide breadth of time the research process must have been quite lengthy because of all of these urban operations battles you're discussing and the time to to do the research and to very succinctly write about them in that 28 pages. Was that process lengthy? It was, but I had an advantage. And that was that about that same time, I was writing a book called War Horse, which subtitled A History of the Military Horse and Rider. And that book is about uh, mounted warfare and, uh, and begins with the Battle of Kadesh and ends with uh, special operations on horseback in Afghanistan in 2001. And so I had done a huge amount of research for that book on ancient armies, focused on cavalry, but on ancient armies in general, the Roman army, the campaigns of Alexander the Great, and then medieval warfare, crusades, the Hundred Years' War, And so when you do that kind of research, although I was focused on looking at cavalry operations over that whole expanse of military history, I got deep into just the nature of warfare in all of those times. And that helped me to see the big picture was, even though cavalry warfare was where I was focused, much of the decisive aspects of warfare, in fact, you could argue all of the decisive actions in most of that long period of military history still revolved around cities. And so I had done a lot of the basic research for my other book before I wrote that chapter. And so then it was just a matter of going back and episodically picking different particular battles that would illustrate the points I wanted to make about the consistency of urban warfare. So you already had the baseline written. So now you could just go pluck out what you needed. That's, that's brilliant. We need to wrap this up uh, there, Lou. So I just want to thank you for your time here today. As an urban warfare historian, it's nice to talk to another urban warfare historian. Thanks, Lewis, for your time here today. Okay, well, thank you for having me. And I'd like just to say thanks to you and, and the Modern Warfare Institute and John. And I would also like to say that, you know, where Russ Glenn and I 20 years ago were in the desert talking about urban warfare, I think you guys have picked up that flag and are doing a great job of continuing an important, an important discussion. So thank you. Oh, thank you very kindly. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the United States Army, the U.S. Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. They also do not represent the positions of the Canadian Army, 
Canadian Armed Forces, the Canadian Department of National Defence, or the Canadian government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favourite podcast app. And be sure to check out MWI's other podcasts as well, and the new articles MWI is publishing every day on their website. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.